Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Stacy Smedley, Sustainability Director at Skanska USA and Executive Director of Building Transparency, a fascinating nonprofit organization founded by a bunch of huge enterprises that are out to decarbonize the construction process. We talked about that specifically in detail, including what embodied carbon is, how to reduce it to zero, whether Stacy believes we can actually get to zero, and finally, of course, where smart building technology fits into play. Specifically as well, we dove into the EC3 tool that's managed by Building Transparency. It's free. I think it's the key to really transforming construction. And there's a key value proposition for operating buildings with zero carbon that I think all of you should understand. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Stacy Smedley. Hello, Stacy. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Stacey Smedley. I'm currently, I wear two hats figuratively and one, one literally, but I'm the executive director of Building Transparency, which is a Washington state-based 501c3 nonprofit uh, with a mission of providing free open access tools and data that reduce embodied carbon. I'm also a director of sustainability for Skanska USA, where I support projects in the Washington region, but also um, a subject matter expert on carbon and living buildings nationally. Cool. And your hat, for those of you that are listening on audio and can't see Stacy right now, her hat says, ask me about embodied carbon. So we're going to do that today. But first, I want to talk about kind of how you got here. And I, I creeped on you on LinkedIn as I do. <laughs> so where I wanted to start was with the, the Magnolia Steel Band. So I watched a couple yes. of your videos. Can you tell me about how that came to be? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've outside of of architecture and buildings and sustainability. M music is my other passion. So I've been doing music since I was a little girl. I started playing guitar when I was 16, thanks to Jewel. That's dating me, but Jewel, Jewel's record came out and I wanted to be like Jewel. So I started writing music and playing guitar, put it down for a long time when I was kind of building my career and focusing on that. And then about six years ago, started an open mic night in Magnolia, where I live in Seattle at a restaurant called Serendipity. I met my bandmates. We all play guitar. So there's 18 steel strings. So we named ourselves Steel Magnolia because we all live here locally. And we largely do originals that I've written. Um, uh, and some of those are keenly focused on what I do, which is uh, environmental work. So there's a few songs out there um, explicitly about that. And our 12 song album is going to drop before Christmas on Spotify and iTunes. And they'll be so happy that I mentioned that on a podcast. <laughs> I'll go awesome. tell my bandmates I got that in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was watching one of your videos and I could tell, you know, sometimes you, you don't necessarily understand the lyrics, but you kind of feel what the song is about. And I, I very much felt the one, I don't remember which one it was, but very much felt that it was about like the sustainability effort. Yeah, uh, there's Swan, Swan Song and Grave Diggers. They take different approaches or lyrical approaches to it, but yeah, probably one of those two. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes. Awesome. Everyone should check them out. All right, and so the rest of my creeping identified that there are many other things that you have active <laughs> roles in right now. So you mentioned Skanska, you mentioned building transparency. I also saw that there's 
Washington Business for Climate Action, and then there's a U.S. State Department advisory group. Can you talk about what those things are? Sure. Yeah. The Washington Businesses for Climate Action really started right after the Paris Agreement as a way to catalyze businesses in Washington that had a focus on sustainability or had their own climate targets to really sign a declaration that Washington businesses were all in. They were going to focus on that. And then we worked on convening them into a kind of an ad hoc policy group that would go and and speak to policy that was being proposed in Washington state and then now really supports um, each other through kind of peer-to-peer presentations and ways to really think about how business can support climate policy and climate targets locally. And then the advisory groups, I'm really excited about that. I was asked to join that and that's um, an industry advisory group for the Department of State, um, really advising them on how to approach all of their building activities globally and what they should be focused on. And I was brought in through my kind of sustainability lens of how can the the State Department really push good design and sustainable building out to all the markets they touch based on where they build things like embassy. And that's just just starting. So I've had my first couple of meetings, but it's pretty exciting too. That's fascinating. That aligns with our webinar that we have. Well, it's this week, but by the time this comes out, it will already have happened. But it's basically about how buildings get built locally. So we can talk about smart buildings on a national or global standpoint all we want, but it's really the local supply chain that makes it happen. That's fascinating that they're thinking yeah. about it in that, in that way. Yeah. All right. And there's also just like the overall thought leadership that you provide. So the your LinkedIn feed, which we'll also link to, is amazing. When did you start doing that? Uh, there are daily posts. That was, it was 20. 20. So this is my second year. I started in 2020. My climate focused New Year's resolution on January 1st, 2020 was to do a climate related post on LinkedIn every day, just as a way to raise awareness. You know, that was at a time when it wasn't something that at least our federal policy or our local kind of local US policy was focusing on. I wanted to figure out a way where I could be trying to spread education and messaging and like the urgency I felt around all of that at yeah. a time when mm-hmm. I thought that was lacking. So that was just a daily post on climate. And it was largely trying to make the case that we needed to do and really bring a lot of things around that to the table. And then in 2021, I shifted, I said, okay, well, that was a year of climate focused posts. I went back and I noticed that a lot of them were not positive. They were like negative. This is what's happening that we need to fix. And I thought, okay, what can I do this year? So I started positive posts and that's really not just focused on climate, but anything positive that I could think of that would be beneficial or that was impacting me positively that I'd want to share. So that was this year. I'm not sure what next year will bring, but we're 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 on day 300 and 20 something, I think of, of this year. So I better start thinking about next year too. <laughs> about <laughs> next year, yeah. for sure. Well, thank you for those. I, I've found many of them and inspiring, but also just informative. The, the recent ones around the GIFs or GIFs, whatever yep. people want to prefer there have been awesome. When did you start doing those? Again, I just, I, my husband's on the weekends, like, can you just please like watch some, some stupid TV show? I'm like, no, I'm going to make some climate gifts today. That started because I was starting to make these kind of cartoon graphics. There's one out there on embodied carbon that's been shared quite a lot that I made while at Skanska. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm making these to help me explain some of these things to either my friends or family or colleagues or clients, I might as well share them with everyone so that, you know, they're more, they're broadly useful, hopefully. So I created a website called climate gifts. Dot com. I just changed the name to climateeverything.com because I'm adding other stuff in there now because I can't help myself. <laughs> but okay. if you if you go to climategifts.com or climateeverything.com, you'll get to them. There's kind of the automated ones, but also just the, the static images of all the graphics. And now there's things on embodied carbon and scope one, two, and three emissions and food uh, and where the impacts of food are. 
And they're actually helping me learn about stuff now too, because I'll tackle I'll tackle a subject and go learn about it and then create the, the infographic or the GIF. So it's been helpful cool. for me too now in the long run. I'm helping a client develop a sustainability product and they were so focused on operating emissions that I said, well, you know, you really should zoom out. And I sent them one of your, one of your links to kind of show the whole life cycle, which is a great jumping off point. So let's, let's talk about that. Can you talk about just like overall, what is embodied carbon? And this is me finally asking about your hat. Sure. Yeah. It's awesome because now um, that I wear this hat to places like breweries, I'm actually explaining this exact same. So you're going to hear what I'm now saying to like the guy that's pouring my beer, which has been really fun and nerdy for me. So, um, so embodied carbon is really talking about all the carbon equivalent emissions that it takes to make something. So when it comes to building materials, it's the emissions of how you extract raw materials from the earth, things like stone or ores or whatever that might be with equipment that burn fuel, how you transport those raw ingredients to a manufacturing facility on trucks or barges or whatnot using fuel, how you then manufacture them into a product. So how you take raw ingredients at a manufacturing facility and through either the chemical reactions that are happening or the the stacks that are going up or the energy you're consuming, how you emit carbon during that process. That's really the cradle to gate emissions, if you want to think of a term around that. But then embodied carbon also thinks about the whole life cycle of that product or material that you made. So how did you transport it to a construction site if it's a building material? How did you put it into place using equipment that burn fuel? How many times did you replace that material as you used your building or you, you know, used that road that you're driving on? And then at the end of that building's life or infrastructure project's life, how do you then take all those building materials apart and then hopefully take them back to a manufacturing facility and reuse them into a new material? thus reducing the new stuff you're using. And so that circular process continues, but there are emissions all along that, that value chain of a product or a material, and they can all be calculated and put together into a number. And then you can also choose where you want to focus along that, that value chain, whether you want to look at the manufacturing emissions first or think about everything all at once, but there's a lot there. And it's not just building materials. You can think about it in terms of, we can have a funny story about this later, but diapers, right? Like how do you, what do you use to make a diaper? How many diapers are you using for your, you know, your child's every 24 hours? And then, you know, what are you doing with those diapers when you're done with them? That would be the embodied (laughs) carbon of a diaper. (laughs) Got it. Got it. And then one of the things that when I've dug into embodied carbon that I don't understand is that you're, you're, say you're making a steel I-beam, for instance, you're emitting when you make that steel I-beam, but when, when you take the building down, where are the emissions then at the end of that? Is that, does that make sense? That question makes sense? And it's a little bit different for every building material. If we focus on buildings in terms of, of where the image, how the emissions spread across that whole life cycle thinking, right? Mm-hmm. For, for things like steel and concrete, most of the emissions are in that making phase. So if you did yeah. a pie chart, you know, 80, 90 plus percent of the emissions are in that making of the, of the steel beam stage. The emissions associated with that steel beam at, at end of life would be the equipment that was used to deconstruct it. So how much fuel did you burn to take that building apart and get that steel into a pile? I see. Where did you I transport see. that steel to? And then what happened to it then? And for steel, that's basically it, right? The recycled okay. content is going to be accounted for in that new product that you make the second time. Got it. In terms of a reduction of the raw stuff. So things like steel and concrete, largely focusing on that cradle to gate manufacturing emission stage is really what makes the most impact because that's where the big component of the emissions are. Okay. 
And then yeah. when we have a building that goes from, you know, design drawings to being decommissioned at the very end, where are the percentages of emissions? Like where's the most and where's the least? Where's the the most again is in that cradle to gate manufacturing stage. So if I was breaking okay. it down, okay, so there's, and again, my, my infographic actually does this really yeah. well. So if we, if we send a link for that, that's good. That cradle to, great cradle to gate stage for most major materials is, again, I would say 80% if you want to take a rough number on average of all emissions. The transportation installation emissions are, are pretty tiny. They could be 3 to 5%. Um, okay. of those emissions. For some materials that you're replacing a lot, like carpet or ceiling tiles, that use phase can actually start to add up because you're taking that amount of carpet that you put in and, and replacing it every five to 10 years. So you're multiplying that, mm. that emissions factor times maybe five for a 50-year building. Okay. So that use phase can grow for some materials. For things like steel and concrete, it's, it's zero, essentially, because you're not taking the concrete away and putting in new concrete. Got and then end of life, again, is going to be in that kind of, you know, 5%-ish range for most projects or products. So Got again, it. that cradle to gate component, if you're trying to take a place where you can have actionable impact right away and have the most impact, that is a good place to focus. It's also the emissions, if you think about it, that once you've emitted them, because you've made the product and now you're putting it into place, you can't go back and, and, and impact them. They've been emitted at time of production, they're in the atmosphere. So if you don't do something about them when you're thinking about what you're building out of and how you're procuring the product, uh, you've kind of lost the opportunity to reduce them. You could awesome. think about materials that last longer for the use phase. And then when you get to that end of life in 50 years, that's really when you're going to be tackling those end of life emissions of that particular yeah. product. Okay. Yeah. This is reminding me of this, one of these books over my shoulder, Confessions of a Radical Industrialist, which I highly recommend. It's about carpet. The guy, you know, started a company based on commercial building carpet. And he went on this like total awakening. I don't know if you ever read it before, but like a total awakening around like how dirty his company was. Is that interface? Like, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're one of our key partners of the work that we're doing with um, building transparency oh, cool. and EC3. Yeah. Yeah, so he's long passed away now, but yeah, interface is like totally transformed the way that they do things. They, they have uh, a they have a they have a carbon sequestering carpet on the market right now. Cool. Yep, it actually stores uh, carbon in its tile. That's really cool. We should talk about that when we get to the EC3 tool in just a minute. For now, I just want to understand, like, okay, you just named out all these different stages of the construction process. Well, we as a society are not going to stop building buildings, right? I don't think, unless that's been news in the last today during Monday morning news. I haven't seen that news. So I don't think we're going to stop building buildings, you know, worldwide. And so what's the pathway? And yet we have to decarbonize as a society. So what's the pathway to decarbonizing the construction process? And that might be a really huge question for a, a short conversation. <laughs> well, I think we can, I, I can try my best to be succinct about it because I obviously think about this quite a bit. So we do need to start with thinking about if we have to build a building at all. And that can be really hard, especially, you know, for, for, for general contractors or owners that are in the business of building things, that's a hard thing to kind of sit with. But I have some stats that I was able to get from uh, a large scale developer that has access to these cool tools. And I, I know for a fact that we have enough empty building stock commercial building stock right now in the U.S. to basically house all the new projected buildings that we were saying we're going to build over the next two to five years. 
So if we just stop building right now, there's plenty of empty space for us to put all that um, square footage into that we say we need. And beyond that, we have more than more than we need. So there's opportunity in all these empty commercial buildings where you could start to retrofit them into schools or, or housing or whatever else we would need. And a big percentage of those buildings that are sitting, sitting empty are LEED certified buildings. So if we don't start to actually think about, gosh, we built all this stuff already and we built some of it quite well. And now we're going to go say, oh, nope, that's not good enough. We've got to go build this new building because that's just what we do. I think we've got to have a really kind of um, hard conversation, hard look at ourselves as an industry in terms of, you know, what the end goal is. So I do think that's important. And I'm hoping that we can share some of these kind of stats that we're starting to look at to really sit with that. Because if we don't build, then we're, we're negating a lot of those upfront emissions of those major materials. And we can focus on investing the money that we would have spent to build new and retrofitting the buildings that we're updating or going into. So start there. We have to. The second thing is then decarbonizing building materials. There's there's kind of two, two legs to that. There's one, the materials that we use today that we know we're going to keep on using. I think that we all know and hope that we're going to use more bio-based materials, more, more wood when it comes to some of the, the structural components of what we do. We're never going to build everything out of those new materials. Concrete okay. and steel have been something that we've had forever. They're going to continue to be there. They're, they're actually quite necessary when it comes to especially things like infrastructure. So we have to decarbonize the materials we have. And there's a lot of work on that going on right now. The positive things when we're talking to steel suppliers or manufacturers or investors um, or, or cement and pilot projects now that are popping up like the hybrid hydrogen steel facility in Sweden or pilot projects in cement where they're capturing all the CO2 off the kiln and figuring out how to um, liquefy it and what they can do with that, with that CO2. There's tons of money going into that right now. So I'm quite confident we're going to be able to get pretty close to zero when it comes to how we make things like steel and concrete over time. And then the third thing is investing in those, those new materials. There's all sorts of things like bamboo and hemp that when you start looking at insulations and, and kind of panels, panelized systems and mass timber like CLT and, and other things that are also, we, we know they exist. We just need to invest more in it. We're at this kind of really interesting moment of startup and investment and a ton, a ton of money and opportunity, really. If we can do that, don't build what we don't need to decarbonize what we do use and find those innovative materials because that's what we think is cool. And that's you know, psychology. You know, humans like to look at all these cool new things and invest in these exciting things. If we do all those three things, we're going to, we're going to get there or at least make really good progress pretty quickly. Makes total sense. So is that what you do at Skanska every day? At Skanska every day, gosh, there's a lot of focus on carbon. There's all the other things we also have to think about if we broaden it to sustainability and environmental impacts. So water and waste and local resilience and, and all the things. But specific to the, the carbon emission side of things, you know, Skanska has set pretty lofty carbon targets. So we're at 70% reduction in our in our own emissions by 2030 and zero carbon, including our value chain by 2045. And those are outward facing commitments for public company. You know, those are board board approved uh, commitments. And they're also, we've gotten the science-based targets stamp of approval now too. So a lot of it is figuring that out. If we're saying that we're going to do that, we have to, we have to do it. So yeah, it's looking at the materials we use. It's um, using tools like EC3 to inform our clients and ourselves on the materials that we have that we can uh, use to reduce carbon emissions. And then it's keeping our eyes on all these new things that are coming up in terms of alternatives that we want to look at and test and pilot on projects. Fascinating. So, so piece, of, I want to get to EC3 in just a minute. The piece of this that I found myself curious about is really like the, the 
important rating systems, right? So I grew up consulting on lead projects. I grew up in my past jobs. I've, I haven't grown up yet, but um, <laughs> I've done a lot of lead consulting. I've done a lot of energy modeling to support lead consulting. And, and part of it that I, I'm just struggling to wrap my head around is lead to me, and, and I'm definitely not an expert in it, but it seems like kind of like a boutique thing at this point. And then there are other rating systems you know, living building challenge would be one that comes to mind. I don't know how, you know, widespread that one is, but like this concept of like, okay, a certain amount of new buildings get lead certified and then we need to decarbonize every building, right? So new and existing. And so how do you think about that gap and how can we kind of like scale up these movements and do we need to, or we just need to just go straight, no carbon and we don't really need rating systems. I think there's a place for all of it. So I think there's not ever going to be one kind of golden ticket solution or rating system or or thing that's going to fit everybody's needs or desires. So my, my thinking is that as long as the rating systems that people can choose between that fit their needs from either a marketing or a, or a commitment or value perspective, rely on the same baselines and data. So if you think about it through the lens of Lead. They have a life cycle assessment credit where they give you credit for doing these whole building life cycle assessments on your buildings and then showing a reduction. They also have a low carbon procurement credit and pilot that looks at um, EPDs and EC3 and lets you use them to show reductions. ILFI's zero carbon certification, same thing. They give you credit for doing these whole building LCAs for the, the, the kind of cradle to installation phase. And then they you must do that and then you have to show reductions. So as long as all the systems are are putting the same kind of process and ask in place that comes to policy, you can add policy on that too. If we have policy and certification systems all asking for the same thing around decarbonization, around healthy materials, around fair labor practices, then it's okay if we have multiple paths to get there, as long as the same thing we're working on is, is driving towards that zero impact that we're wanting, whether it's toxicity or carbon or what, whatever else it is. Okay. So a lot of the work that we're doing, that I, I started thinking about with Skanska and now with my building transparency hat on, my kind of two-headed Stacy, able to work on it kind of more, more broadly, if we can start aligning the ask and the process in my current world, particular to carbon emissions uh, and embodied carbon, I want you to be able to go use LEED or LBC or zero carbon or you know buy clean policy compliance. I want you to be able to go do all of those things by doing this one, this one exercise on your mm. project. So, you know, if, if the same requirements are everywhere and you have to do it once, that's going to accelerate things. I think we've learned a lot in sustainability and buildings with other things like, like health disclosure through things like Red List or HBDs and all the other things I could list off where we've been duplicative. And I think with embodied carbon, we're at this weird time where we can use those lessons to just be additive and do it one way very well that's standardized. Um, and that's just going to accelerate it more, more quickly. That's a long kind of rant on that, but I think it's really important that we kind of align efforts and not be competitive amongst all these different systems or ways of doing it. If that makes totally. sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. There are similar sort of competing that shouldn't be competing standards in the smart building technology world that we don't need to get yeah. into today, but yeah, there's similar movements. It's like the, the tide would lift all boats if we would end the competition. That's not how the world works. You still have to be able to make money and have businesses that do that do these things well, right? Yeah, but there's gotta be like a baseline starting point in my mind. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. 
This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right, so potentially controversial question then. So I mentioned the lack of scale that these rating systems have today. Why do you think that is? I mean, I've worked in all of them in my work as doing architecture now and then at Skanska for almost nine years. I think that there's always been this nagging perspective or quality that anything around sustainability and, and green design and construction has a cost associated with it or a time sink. And so when you think about how rating systems are set up, whether it's LEED or LBC, Living Building Challenge, they're, they're, they're checklists and time. There's time associated with you have to have an expert that's going to do the work and understand it. There is an added cost or added potential risk that owners or even GCs could perceive when looking at these things. So I think we have started, there are those of us that do those things really well. We understand LEED, we understand Living Building Challenge. We can tell a client or an owner that we can do this at little to no added cost to get to a certain tier certification rating system, whether it's lead gold or you know LBC core to try to help de-risk some of those things now. But I think that has been the biggest barrier. It's just the convincing okay. that, no, I mean, we know you want to do this. You're scared it's going to cost more. You're scared it's going to be inefficiencies in the design or construction process. We're now smart enough to be able to kind of mitigate some of those, but that takes some time to, so, to yeah. kind of build your bench of experts that can really do the work. Absolutely. Fascinating. All right, so we mentioned EC3 a couple of times. What, what is it and, and what does it stand for? Sure, yeah. So uh, if you Google EC3, I think you're going to get EC3 The Wrestler first. So we are not associated <laughs> with EC3 The Wrestler. <laughs> um, we are the EC3 tool, which is the body carbon and construction calculator is um, what EC3 stands for. It was co-conceived of by myself at Skanska and C-Change Labs, a software development company that was trying to find an Elaine in climate tech. I found an embodied carbon forum of really deep nerds. And he was like, Hey, I really want to figure out how I can help. So we got together and it was, it was all based on this need that I had found in my role at Skanska around finding the way that we could not just kind of benchmark how much carbon we had in our buildings in this embodied carbon bucket, but think about it kind of like we estimate where if you've got a cost per cubic yard of concrete from three suppliers, you can say, okay, this guy's lower than that guy time of bid. Mm -hmm. If we had a carbon intensity per cubic yard of concrete also, we could do exactly the same thing and have supplier A, B, and C and their carbon intensity per unit of their mix and be able to assess them for the lowest carbon supplier. So I was trying to figure out a way where we could have the cost and the carbon metric next to each other. That led me to environmental product declarations, which are third-party verified documents from the manufacturers for products that give you that carbon intensity per unit in a disclosed okay. way in basically PDF documents. So I had started to source these carbon intensities. I would go find them on supplier websites. I'd put them into a box folder. I'd open up an Excel spreadsheet. I'd go to page six and find that little carbon intensity table. I'd put all these things in my Excel spreadsheet and it would take me you know, hours for one, yeah. for one project and three. So my idea was that we needed to find a way to actually digitize all of it. There had to be a way where we could create kind of like a, a clearinghouse of this information. It should take me like three or four clicks to be able to compare my suppliers and find this information. 
And so what we did was have, I applied for an innovation grant through Skanska, proof of concept, just digitizing a certain number of these EPDs into a database with the user interface. Microsoft then came on board second to help seed fund that proof of concept because they were building a large campus project and Skanska through a joint venture with Balfour Beatty had been brought on as the GC. Said, okay, let's pilot this. And then Magnuson Clemensic Architects and Carbon Leadership Forum and a few others got involved uh, and said, yes, this needs to be an industry led thing. Scanska and Microsoft said, let's make it free and open access for industry. And it became, became kind of a, a large industry project. And what we got to by November of 2019 was a database of nine construction material categories full of digitized EPDs that could be sorted in, for carbon intensity. And then a project planner that you could actually put in quantities and kind of see your projects. And it was launched publicly in November of 2019 as a project at the Carbon Leadership Forum. And kind of, we had, I think we had a thousand people on the wait list then. We're at 18,000 registered users now. And it's now being hosted and maintained by this nonprofit that makes sure that it stays free and open access and mission driven with funding from all sorts of different industry partners continuing. It's a lot. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't too rambly, but that's no. kind of the whole the whole story of, of where it came from and what it currently is. That is incredible. And so how do you do this like in your spare time or how does that work? No, Skanska, um, Skanska, instead of giving, um, you know, real dollars right now is donating my time to actually run the nonprofit as the executive director, just to ensure that this thing that, you know, that they helped conceive of continues to scale and be adopted and managed. And, and yes, I'm very lucky. It's a pretty awesome opportunity to be able to take this thing and make sure that it's it's scaling, that everyone that gave impact and input and funding continues to be able to support it through this nonprofit. So how do people use it? How does it show up like in the design and construction process? Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're a pretty kind of, if you look at the pie chart of our current users, it's pretty kind of 50% architects. I think it's actually more like 30% architects, 15% GCs, structural engineers, sustainability consultants, owners, manufacturers, so there's really a different way that each, where you sit, you, how you use it's different. If you're an architect, if you're looking at a project that's kind of in design development, you know you're building it out of steel and concrete and you've got ceiling tiles and carpet and gypsum board and insulation. You can build your project in the tool using Revit, Revit material quantities that can be imported in. And then you can start to compare the materials for each category. So I have this much gypsum board. These are the suppliers in my in my search that have this range of carbon emissions. So there's a range of what's possible. I can compare my gypsum suppliers and say, okay, supplier X has the lower carbon option. So I'm going to specify that guy as my basis of design. Mm-hmm. So architects can really find the hotspots using the Revit plugin to get the quantities and then look at the suppliers and set those kind of, I want you to you know, start costing based on this guy because he meets my requirements and is low carbon. Structural engineers, same thing when it comes to concrete and steel, just really understanding, you know, when you change material quantities, how does that affect your totals? But then also, you know, who are the steel suppliers and, you know, actual mills that are lower carbon? If I want to start putting that in my specs, how do I write a concrete spec to make sure I'm getting low carbon options? Contractors are really in charge of, of doing the, the realized accounting. So there are some of our owner partners that are requiring the GCs now to create. So I have this much of all these things. I have this much concrete and steel. And then I know I got it from this supplier. So I'm going to go pick his EPD in the tool. So here, owner X, here's your actual carbon emissions for your project based on the quantities we installed and the materials we used. GCs can also use it during pre-construction to do an initial estimate, just kind of like a cost estimate. And just Skanska has just recently announced that they're committing to doing that on all projects over 5,000 square meters starting in 2022. So 
how can we start just taking the quantities during estimate time and creating these carbon estimates that just become part of our, our estimating process. So and owners require it. So owners can be the ones that say, we're going to use EC3 to do this accounting. And we want you to give us these reports and actually reduce carbon by this percentage or use the tool to show us our, our carbon emissions of our projects. Manufacturers are using it, which is interesting to actually go in and see how they compare to their competitors and then kind of take ownership of their data and the tool and make sure that it's, it's, it's reading as they want it to from a kind of performance perspective and images and things. Yeah. And then policymakers are using it too. So we're actually informing the kind of state and federal procurement policies in terms of how much data is there, where are the gaps, can we start setting limits for our carbon intensity per unit for steel, things like that, you know, playing all the buckets. Is there a concept for what a building should like per square foot be at? Like in, in the energy of, world, we have the benchmarking, right? Yep. This EUI should be somewhere in this range yep. compared to buildings to each other. Yeah. So is there similar metric? Yeah. So I, I've been calling it either I've either seen it be called a carbon use intensity or embodied carbon use intensity, but it's very oh, similar. Yeah. It's just kilograms of CO2 per square foot or square meter. And, it. okay. and that's easy to get to when you have the material quantities and the, the, the amounts in the square footage of the building. So it's, it's very similar to me. And in my mind, we should eventually have EUI plus ECUI yeah. and you that's have a total CUI. Okay. So I think that's coming to get to that kind of number right now. The Carbon Leadership Forum did an embodied carbon benchmarking study probably about four or five years ago now, where they just collected all the different carbon footprints that have been done by anyone that would share and try to normalize those for the different building types. If you look at the zero carbon certification, they have a limit. It tends to be around 500 kilograms of CO2 per square meter, which is 50 around 50 kilograms of CO2 per square foot is kind of a general conservative starting point. I think it can range from like, if we're doing it in square feet, 30 to 50, somewhere in there, uh, depending on the building type. But that, that benchmarking studies, we could, we could link to that too. It's actually available where you can go sort the data and start to look at the, the ranges okay. on a per square meter or per square foot basis. Cool, yeah, I think I did yeah. come across that. Another hard question I wanted to ask you about was the construction process is very difficult to change, right? And so if we think about this tool, that sounds like a game changer, right? How do we modify, how do we insert this new technology into the construction process? And are, is that challenging right now, I guess? And, and what's the kind of the roadmap to kind of disrupting the construction process as we know it? So I think because we had such a great kind of brain trust of folks in, in putting their thoughts into it as we were developing. So there was, there was myself, there was others on the GC side from companies like WebCore and now Turner, who's a pilot partner, structural engineers like MKA and Walter P. Moore architects, Perkins and Jeff, all these different folks basically helped us create the UI. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible and as, as easy to, to implement as possible. From a GC perspective, the way I've seen it used during pre-construction right now is if you just start with a list of six materials like concrete, steel, you know, framing, gypsum board, et cetera. It could be a list of maybe 20 things and the pre-construction estimators just, just like they do with their on-screen takeoff and Timberline or Express or whatever, they're just inputting mm -hmm. those things into EC3 at the same time. It might take them an hour. It's not 20 hours. So we've, we've tried to make it as translatable as possible in terms of how other things are currently done. The estimating example, I guess, is one of them where it's just another thing that an estimator knows he has to do at the deliverable time. And it's just one more hour long exercise. I think when it comes to construction, 
you know, currently right now the GCs are, are creating an account and just doing the same thing where they're just building this as another exercise they have to do. It would be amazing to integrate with the tools that GCs are using. And we have some conversations ongoing. Like if we can, if we can insert this into a tool or a, or a process or a workflow that already exists in terms of what that project engineer or project manager is using or doing, where it's just, hey, I've got to put in my ASVL quantities and click the EPD as part of this other bigger effort that I'm already doing for invoicing or for whatever. I think that's how we start to really open it up to a lot of the GCs that might be worried that it's going to be, you know, more FTE time that they then have to put into their, their general conditions for an owner. But we've, okay. but I, again, I don't, I, right now I can say with some degree of confidence and certainty that it's not like this is a, a one FTE ad to a project. It's a few hours a week or per design deliverable phase. And hopefully that makes it more palatable just as a starting point. It's also free. So the tool is free. So that's another barrier that we've tried to, to take away just in terms yeah. of how we set things up. Cool. So what's the future of the tool? Like, where do you think this would be headed long-term? Gosh, it's already, um, when it was launched in 2019, it was a North American focused tool where you're just trying to get the data in from North American suppliers. We now have EPDs from all over the world and we have partnerships that we've developed with right now with the program operators and their consortium in Europe called Eco Platform to try to align how we do all this and digitize it. So I see it, it already is now a global database, but quickly becoming a, a very comprehensive global database of any EPD that exists from any supplier. And we're on that path right now. And hopefully kind of the place that people can start to either access the data and put it in their own tools, because you can do that and take the whole database out through an API into any tool you want to align the data source, but also something that global policy can turn to because it's a global database in a standard format to start to look at things like carbon intensities and border adjusted carbon tax and all sorts of crazy stuff. But that's not really that crazy when you think about what we need to do and what a lot of the COP COP countries just agreed to do, which is really start to look at how they procure these things. They're going to need a place to go to procure these things in a way that's globally standardized. So I, I, I hope that we'll, that's where we are in just, you know, not 10 years, maybe five. Fascinating. So it seems like to me that there's like a, so we talked about the whole cycle of emissions, right? What you're talking about is the initial selection, right? Of the material. And then a lot of what we cover on this show also is like the obviously the O&M phase of the building, right? Where you have this continuing effort to digitize more and more of the operations. And there's this concept of a digital twin or a digital asset register, right? So what do you see those digital platforms, I guess, connecting to each other? Like how, how and what will we use it for when we start to use this data in the operating phase? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Again, the two parts of EC3 are the database of all these carbon intensities and products and, and materials. And yeah. then the second part's our UI that allows people to use it during the design phase. I think the database actually becomes the more powerful object in the future when you start to think about things like digital twins and how you could basically attach the carbon, carbon factors out from the database to whatever system you're using to do that. And if yes. you update a material or replace the material, you would then swap out that carbon intensity to a new carbon intensity for the new material and be able to track right. it in real time. And I am not a software developer. I have learned a lot in the past couple of years about how this all works. I'm sure. But for sure. me, it's all about APIs and the ability, open APIs that enable this information to translate between tools in a standardized way so that it is, I guess, applicable, but shared. Uh, so it's an ecosystem of APIs that attach all these different 
carbon factors and things we need on the environmental side to all the tools that need to basically use it and how those kind of merge together. I started to draw this out at one point and it got all these bubbles got all over the place. <laughs> it was not a, it's not an easy to download infographic, but I think there is a pathway to that. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, the main value would be when you're switching out and replacing materials. So right now, a lot of times a decision like that is made off of ROI that that's usually upfront costs versus on operating savings, right? And now you're talking about upfront costs, operating savings, yes, but also ongoing and embodied carbon in the yes. retrofit project. So then you're, yep. you'd have the ability to then make a better decision. Correct. Easier. Yeah. yeah. Or even just help That's owners great. set longer replacement cycles or think about, think about things just a little bit differently in terms of even things as mundane as roofing replacement, right? Yeah. Oh, we just do it every 10 years because that's what we do. Well, maybe that roof actually lasts 20 years. And here's what happens Absolutely. if you actually let it last 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, yeah. we like the, the amount of commitments that are being made, it's like we we have to do it. And so it's not necessarily like should we? It's like the only way in which these commitments get get met is if we start to integrate these tool, these sorts of tools into the processes. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I've learned a ton listening to you. Do you want to end off with a little fun two truths and a lie? Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> All right. So I'm going I'm to give you the three and then you have to decide which one's the lie. Yes. And you've already, you, you said you, you've already stalked me a little bit on LinkedIn. So I'm trying to think of things that wouldn't be on there too. Um, I've been on the Oprah Winfrey show. I've met and played for Jewel and I okay. have one brother. <laughs> oh that one's tough but the third one is a random <laughs> fact <laughs> um i'm gonna go with that yeah, whatever this is it's gonna be a good story at the end i'll go with the brother is the lie you are right all right you're correct and now you must tell the story of oprah and jewel okay well the oprah story will, will answer why the third one's a lie so I actually have 16 half siblings that are all donor siblings wow. because my mom used a sperm donor to have me in 1980 before it was kind of normal or something that's more, more talked about. She was a single wow. woman that wanted a, wanted a daughter. Uh, and then the Oprah Winfrey show reached out after I matched with my first half brother. He was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa that I found on this donor sibling registry site. We were the only matched grownups. So they were Oprah, Oprah, the Oprah show wanted to have us on to talk about what it was like to find our sibling as a grown-up. They flew him from Togo to Portland. We met on, like he got off the train and we had this train station meeting that they taped and they fly us to Chicago and we were on the show. And I may have made Oprah cry in terms of her watching our little video. So, so Oprah was like right here. <laughs> wow. And since incredible. then we found 15 more donor siblings. We all talk to each other every day and we, yeah, it's pretty fun. That is incredible. Wow. Yeah. And then Jewel, um, people say that I have really good luck. So I'm in the fan club. Obviously I told, told you that I started playing guitar because Jewel was my hero when I was 16. So I was part of her fan club and it was me, my mom and I have seen her 21 times live. We see her every summer, wherever she is, we find a place. I was like, hey, entered to win a chance to, to interview Jewel. So I just entered the fan club thing and I won it. And I got to go backstage with her and uh, ask her a whole bunch of questions. But I brought my guitar and I played her an original song and she signed my guitar. And it was pretty awesome. That is so cool. Wow. Yeah. This might be my peak two truths and a lie experience so far. 
on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm also open book. I don't mind sharing my all my things. So. <laughs> wow. Well, we're gonna have to. Our, our podcast editor Zach is gonna have to go down a, a search rabbit hole to maybe include some of these <laughs> things if they're on the internet. But they again, Stacy, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, and thanks for everything you do. I mean, this is really important work right now, as you're aware of. I appreciate the chance to talk all about it. I kind of, I kind of love talking about it. I also like doing stuff about it. So let's keep on doing that too. Don't be surprised if there are Nexus listeners that reach out and want to collaborate in some way. And I hope they do. Yay. Good. All right. See ya. All right. Thanks. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.